Hi, I'm Elijah Wood. And I'm Daniel Noah. We have a company called SpectreVision, and we make genre movies like A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and Mandy. We came together about 10 years ago over a shared passion for art and movies that dwell in dark places, and how genre can provide a platform for us to confront our deepest fears in ways that are fun, entertaining, and sometimes even therapeutic. So we've joined forces with Shudder to create Visitations, an original podcast in which we travel to the homes and studios of some of our favorite creators in the genre community, and we talk about their lives, their work, and how they've managed to take those deepest, darkest fears and turn them into art. So check it out if you want to hear our intimate conversations with Taika Waititi, Anna Lilia Mirpur, Flying Lotus, Kate and Laura Malivi of Redarte, Dan Harmon, Guillermo del Toro, and more. Talking about the things that scare us and how we find light in the darkness. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, or check out Shudder.com for some really cool bonus content exclusively available to Shudder members. I'm Shutter curator Sam Zimmerman. This is the History of Horror Uncut, an essential audio companion to Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth's History of Horror is a seven-episode docuseries threading the evolution and immortality of the genre and all its terrors within. These are the full, candid interviews, most of which can only be found and heard right here in this podcast. You'll hear how the genre shaped these filmmakers, authors, makeup maestros. You'll hear the personal, unbridled appreciation that only comes from those who know how special horror can be. Welcome to a more intimate history of horror. The History of Horror Uncut is built with the full, raw interviews conducted in production for Eli Roth's History of Horror. In some cases, Eli leads the talk itself, and in others, deeply knowledgeable producer Kurt Sienga stepped in. Today is one of Eli's most exciting— if really only to hear his own spilling thrill to sit down with the world's horror dad and idol to all of us, Stephen King. Stephen King's legacy is unparalleled. The author of Carrie and Salem's Lot, The Stand, The Shining, Pet Cemetery, The Dark Tower, It. For so many, Stephen King is not only the gateway, but the guide, a storyteller, a professor, a family member. His constant outpouring has kept us company throughout our whole horror-loving lives. He has been extraordinary in his ability to be expressly mainstream and yet so true to his visions, themes, and the genre, most recently embodied in the stunning 2018 horror novel, The Outsider. Though outspoken on social media and prolific in writing, it still really feels like we don't actually hear from King all that much. So it's a treat to present a lengthy, candid talk with this master of the macabre, one that touches on the genre, his own fandom and insights, and of course the many avenues of his work, including process and film adaptations. Here now is Eli Roth and Stephen King. Listen up, ghouls. First, we're both huge horror fans. Obviously, my gateway drug into reading was your books. I mean, I started with, I mean, I think it was children, there was an anthology with Children of the Corn and right. Skeleton Crew. And I remember being, and I went to summer camp in Maine, in mm-hmm. Casco, Maine, sitting there like with a flashlight, going to bed. That's and like right next door to where I live, man. I love close. I loved it. Do you think there's something about growing up on the East Coast and the woods at night that just gives you an appreciation, a flavor for horror? And, or is it the torture of being a Red Sox fan? <laughs> it's neither one of those things. It's just something that you grow up with and every kid you know, wants to take a chance and see how much they can take. Yeah. I, I remember sitting, my, probably my first experience is sitting, like when you have a sleepover with friends is telling scary stories or a ghost story or urban mm-hmm. legend. What was your, do you remember, like, a, was there a gateway drug, like one experience you had with scare that you got addicted to the feeling? 
Boy, I can remember watching a lot of movies on WPIX when I was a little kid, yeah. you know, and they showed the same thing over and over again. And for me, although it's hilarious now, at four years old, it was scary. There was a picture called Robot Monster. Mm -hmm. And it was basically a guy. Gorilla. Yeah, it was a guy from space with a diving helmet on, you know, and it's ridiculous now. And then there was the creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, and what I remember maybe five or six years old and watching that thing on TV is the girl in the white bathing suit and yes. the creature is right below her and reaching up and not quite touching her foot and I'm going like you know and I'm thinking at that point that's scary as hell and I would like to do that but the other thing was the uh the uh Tales from the Crypt comic books and, the EC comics I yeah, love those yeah. because really what is a comic book it's a storyboard for mm -hmm. a movie Right. So we went ahead and and George and I, you know, well, Creepshow's Creep yeah. one of my all time favorite. Movies. We wanted to do that. And, you know, my first thing with George was he said, we ought to work together and do something. I'm like, I'm down with that. And I thought about it a little bit and I said, why don't we just do a movie that's all like. You know how comedy skits have blackouts? Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, let's do a number of horror blackouts. You know, just show a guy, you know, who's doing the garbage disposal and pushing stuff in there. And all at once Finds it starts magazine. up and the blood goes everywhere. And George thought, well, yeah, but why don't we do a number of stories like Tales from the Crypt? And I went, yeah, let's, let's do that. I remember seeing Creepshow. There are so many things I love about that movie. And you look back now, it's, it's Ed Harris with hair. Other things. Yeah, right. But the cockroaches was the thing at school. Yeah. That was like the thing that yeah. was like everyone was talking about. Yeah. The image of E.C. Marshall. I find with horror, the first time you watch it, there's that shocking image. I always say blood stains your eyes. But mm -hmm. then you, the second time you watch it, it's not as scary, but you notice other things. And then there's some random line like, Well, you're a director, Mr. And you, Pratt. You do that. But see, the thing was, Savini was the guy who did the effects on that movie. Genius. And, and he did, I, I did Jordy Verrill, so he did a cast of me. And it was a little bit freaky because it was so claustrophobic, you know, to have that stuff all over your face. And they put a thing in your mouth, yeah. you know, that you can breathe through. So EG came in because it was going to be a thing at the end where the bugs were just going to sort of explode out of him. And they wanted to do a, a full face cast of him and have the bugs explode out of his body. The guy says to him, you know, Tom says, you know, we're going to cover you. Are you claustrophobic? Because this stuff yeah. is going to be all over your face. And EG is just as flat as could possibly be. No, but can I have some bourbon tipped into the straw every now and then? So <laughs> they have they have him covered with this stuff. And they have like and an eyedropper? A little tiny bit of bourbon in all the time. And he did it. And when we did the final scene, he just sort of explodes with bugs all inside him. Everybody was like nervous, scared to death. It could be one take. Yeah. That's the only thing you could do. There were like 5,000 cockroaches, and they were going to blow them through this, this tube, you know, pneumatically. I know. Now you'd have a digital cockroach. You Back then, you really had to do yeah, it with the cockroaches. cockroaches. They were everywhere, Eli. Yeah. Those cockroaches were <sighs> everywhere. And the people started to just freak out of him. And George would see these cockroaches climbing over him, and he would just, just brush them off. off. There was nothing to it. So there was this quiet on the set. Okay, set, get the cockroaches ready, <laughs> cue the cockroaches kind of thing. And it's a white room, 
and they did it, and it was perfect, and everybody in the place just exploded into applause. It's one of the, it's one of the great great moments in movies. I often hear this criticism of horror, that people will watch a movie, it terrifies them, and then go back years later and go, it doesn't hold up. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of a bullshit criticism because it's almost like cologne or perfume that wears off. I mean, you will never be as scared of the yeah. haunted house the second time. I, I, it just drives me crazy when people go, oh, Evil Dead's the scariest movie. And they go, I remember it being much scarier. The great thing about horror is it'll never get you as much as it did the first time. And you're always like chasing that dragon to get that thrill again. Well, you see the art the second time. You see the art the third time. Uh, I can remember just sort of wandering into a screening of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, it was in the afternoon, and it was like a Saturday or something. The place was full of kids. There was no rating system per se then. The whole place was full of kids. It was like a Saturday matinee. And they're all, you know, yelling and grab-assing around and throwing their popcorn boxes. And that thing got going, and they just felt entirely silent. And they're just all eyes. And I'm thinking to myself, and I was scared too. The first time that you see something like that, you're not prepared for what you're looking at. I mean, there were things that were so transgressive in that movie. The little girl stabs little her girl, mother. The to little death. kid killing her mom. That didn't, no one had ever but seen anything the, like that. Eli, the second time. I mean, the first time you see it, you're just horrified. You can't believe what you're seeing. The second time you see it. You see the art. I mean, this was a movie that was made on the quick. It was independent. There wasn't any money behind it to speak of. You see the shadows on the wall, the blood splattering there that's black and white, and it's very, con you know, the contrast. He goes back and forth between that and the light bulb that's going back and forth. And yeah. You see the shadows. You see him going across well, you made, I mean, you made that brilliant connection between the shadows in Night of the Living Dead and the birds, where, yeah. you know, you see Tippi Hedren waving the light. Well, I'm sure that's, light. There's some, yeah, it's I'm sure of that's where, where George, George got, got it from. It. You know, you, so you see the art. I mean, the first time that you watch the birds, you just freak, and you say to yourself, I'm totally involved in the story. You're totally lost in it. That's why, you know, they kind of pull you in there and then all at once you're terrified because you, you can't get out. The second time you see some of the stuff that he's doing, like with the aerial shot, mm -hmm. with the bird in the foreground, and he looks down and you see the fire coming up on the, the town mm -hmm. from where the guy crashed the car. So. And when they look at the camera and they're like, you brought us here, you're the reason. That, that, that yeah. direct, addressing the audience But that let me way. tell you something too. The people who make these movies don't understand, you don't understand when you make something, whether it's gonna work or not. It's like comedy in a yeah. way, it's very, like who would have thought the Blair Witch Project would work the way that it was? The first time I saw that movie, I was in the hospital and I was doped up. My son brought a VHS tape of it and he said, you gotta watch this. Halfway through it, I said, turn it off, it's too freaky, I can't. I had the same experience. Some, a friend of mine said, hey, I made this movie, it just got into Sundance, and he gave me a tape of it, and I watched it, yeah. and it was, and I was like, I have to turn the lights on. I was so disturbed by the end of the movie. It's disturbing. I was That's like, right. I get chills thinking about how yeah. scared I was. The, the memory of how scared I was when I watched The Blair Witch Project, I'd never seen, and, and the fact that the mm -hmm. ending they dropped the camera, the guys on the wall, and it's over. Yeah. And, you, and then they started the campaign of like, is it real, is it fake, and then mm -hmm. it caught on. The same, and again, paranormal activity scared me you know, the that, same that's, damn way. That's a different thing. The, the, the advertising campaign for that movie was, was fucking brilliant. The first time a website was used in the making and yeah, the marketing of a movie. Yeah. But the thing is, it wouldn't have worked if the movie didn't work. But I the know, movie really disturbed people. 
It was so scary. I mean, I, I'm try, I try to think of those seminal experiences where, you know, I have like markers in my brain. The, but you had the experience with Bambi as like almost your first horror. My first horror movie was Pinocchio. And I don't even remember. My, my parents reminded me I was completely obsessed with Pinocchio and I was terrified of the whale. Yeah. That scared me so much. And then it was a reviewer that years later pointed out the similarities between Hostel and Pinocchio of the three <laughs> boys going to Amsterdam looking for sex. Is like Pinocchio going to Pleasure Island yeah. and being turned into the jackass by Stromboli. It's weird. We can't escape See, our obsessions from childhood. That was the thing about Pinocchio that scared me was they were growing ears. It's, you could tell that so whatever they were doing, scary. they didn't understand what was happening to them. The first movie that terrified me to the point where I could barely look at it was The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, I was the Haunting probably, was so scary. Probably 11 years old, and you never really see anything until that woman that comes. That door's up. pounding is yeah, like the it. scariest sound. I remember and, that. And the door kind of bulges. Yeah. But the thing is, it builds up and it builds up, and finally she's going up these stairs, this ratty, you know, rattly, unsteady spiral staircase, and the trap door opens, and it's the professor's wife, and she goes, ah! Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm dead. <laughs> I had a heart attack, I'm never gonna grow up. Well, it's also a feeling of no one will ever do anything as scary as this again. You're right. like, the scariest haunt, and then paranormal activity comes out, and then The Conjuring comes out, and you're just thinking, okay, James makes scary moves, and it's freaking ter As soon as she goes, let's play the game, clap, clap. But we've talked about, I mean, I've never read a lot about the changeling. The mm -hmm. I love the changing in the image of the ball, of the, ball the, the, the bouncing ball. Have you seen Fellini's Toby Dammit? Nope. You've got to see Toby Dammit. Spirits, it's, it's, it was part of an anthology called Spirits of the Dead, where Roger Vadim, Louis Malle, and Fellini each adapted a Poe short story. Oh, cool. And Poe adapted one called Never Bet the Devil Your Head. And they released it as a 40-minute standalone feature as Terrence Stamp as this crazy drunk, like, drug addict actor from England who goes to Italy to make a spaghetti western, but he's haunted by the image of a little girl that has a white girl with a bouncing ball that he wants to, that she wants to play with him. Spirits and he knows the, the dead? It's called Spirits of the Dead. I'm gonna find it. There's, it's okay. on the, the Criterion release one that's in French. I have the English and Italian. It's hard to find. But it's like, it's got the image of the little girl and the white bouncing ball. And the music is very similar. Nino wrote to the music. It's very similar to Halloween. It was a, Nothing to do with the show. It was a trilogy, one of the American International pictures back in the day. You're too young to remember, but I saw them all in the I'm theater. I mean, I remember Nosferatu. I was, whatever. Well, yeah. this, this goes earlier than that. But there was one of those guys who adapted uh, Nikolai Gogol's story, The Ring. And it's a very, very simple story. The best ones always are. And basically, the guy, this woman is buried with this expensive ring on her hand. She's in a crypt. And he goes in, and she started to decay a little bit. And he steals the ring, and she comes out of the grave to get it. Simple, but it, oh my God, it's so Do you, scary. Sometimes when I'm starting a movie, I'll think of a kill. Like in Cabin Fever, I was like, oh, she shaves her legs off. Mm -hmm. And you write the movie basically as an excuse to do the to scene. Do the scene. Do you it's start like my wife saying lobster is basically an excuse to eat butter. It's so true, yes. Yeah, it's the same do you thing. start with the lobster or the butter, or does it just depend story to story? Okay, a lot of times with shorter fiction, I start with something that I really want to do to creep the reader out or to scare the, the hell out of him. Uh, I've got a story now that I want to write, but I can't tell you. I mean, it has to do with 
a guy who gets buried with a cell phone in his pocket. Okay. I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you all. Right, no, no, so, don't tell us. But I'm just, yeah. but it starts with that yeah. seed of that, oh, I want to right. see someone, what would you do in and, this? You know, and uh, I'm walking on our road here, and somebody was building something, and uh, there was one of those porta-potties out there, and I thought to myself, you know what? What would happen if somebody got locked in one of those? You know, how would he get out? And I'm thinking, well, he'd have to go through the hole and crawl through all that stuff down there and somehow find a way out. So I called somebody that I knew in construction and I said, how hard would it be to get into a porta potty and escape through the bottom? And he goes like, yuck! Yeah. And I thought, I got something. Here. That's it. I well, got something. Sometimes I'll tell someone an idea and they go, oh, that's too. That's too crazy, you can't do but that. But there are moments. And that's what okay, I know. There are moments that I remember, there's a Fulci film, Luigi Fulci. I, I mean, And there's Luigi a zombie or somebody. Zombie you know, 2. There's a, there's Grabs a, the splinter. Right. Splinter and it goes the into eye. the eye. Zombie 2. Yeah. That's one of the best kills ever in movies. Yeah. I thought, Lucio Fulci for me is probably the most underrated director. Mm -hmm. I've seen his early comedies, his Jallo films, Don't Torture a Duckling, Seven Doors of Death, The Beyond, I love. Zombie 2 is is one of the best things because it's a ripoff of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. They needed a sequel, so in Italy, Dawn of the Dead was released as zombies. Don't, so don't forget the zombie that has the fight with a shark. That's the greatest thing ever in a movie. It's Zombie 2. It's, totally, call over, it. it's totally over the top. Lucio right? Fulci, actually, and I'm friends with his daughter, Antonella, because I, I wanted to know how did a guy fight a zombie. He put a stuntman who had trained a shark in zombie makeup in the ground and he had a shark that, I mean, they think they drugged the hell out of the shark. The guy puts his <laughs> arm in the shark. This guy knew the shark well enough to put his arm in the shark. It's actually, they shut the whole movie for $200,000. It's a guy holding his breath in zombie makeup, you know, putting his arm in a shark. The shark bites the zombie, the zombie bites the shark, and the shark swims away. It has absolutely nothing to do with the movie, but it's probably one of the greatest scenes ever in horror films. But it doesn't have to have a lot to do with the movie a lot of times because these things are like dreams. I've always felt that. I always felt that movies were the conscious, were the closest representation to what it is when you have a dream and our memory of movies and our memory of dreams become very similar. If I think about a dream I had and I think about a movie I saw years ago, they, they have the similar type of feeling and I've always felt that horror films are the closest representation to our dreams. There's, there's almost no logic. You can kind of go anywhere. What is it I mean, I've thought about this and talked about this over and over. Being scared is not an emotion we want to feel in real life. We do everything to avoid being afraid. But what is it about reading scary books, telling scary stories, novels that we just love? It's just some incredible, incredible endorphin release. It's safe. It's a safe thing. Uh, it's a safe place to go. There are two different sides to this. One is there are movies, Death Wish is one, Okay, mm -hmm. your picture, Death Wish, the original, the Michael Winner, I think mm -hmm. it was. It yes, Michael that. Winner. There are a number of pictures like the Friday the 13th movies, the uh, Freddy movies, where you're able to actually take your, your deepest, most antisocial impulses for a walk. Mm -hmm. And it's safe. Uh, nobody gets hurt. We understand on one level that it's not happening, but on another level, it's as real as any of our fantasies. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is what you just said is true. We don't really like to be scared in real life, but in a movie, we have a chance to be afraid and to almost externalize the fears that we have. There are things in some movies that are like classic moments. 
the girl who is alone in a parking garage, and you hear the click clack. I can't see any movie where some character is in a parking garage where I don't say to myself, something awful is going to happen to this person. It's just, it's just bad news. And then there's the hospital, okay? The mm -hmm. person who's in the hospital and, and the nurse helpless. goes, I'll be right back. That's and you're right. in the bed. I'm That's just down right. the hall if you need me. Just ring that buzzer. Just and you're going, your, their hand's not going to reach it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard from soldiers on military bases who tell me they're like, I can't watch your movies. Well, we'll they'll show Hostel or something on a military base and people are screaming and covering their eyes, but they have to go out mm -hmm. and you know face real death every because day. Because they do, you know, it's a different thing. But for most of us, uh, we have that experience. There's another side of it too. There's the imagination side of it. What would I do in this situation? Are these characters behaving in a way that I would behave? For me, man, if I was in a cabin somewhere and I whipped out my iPhone and I say, I got no signal, I'd get the hell out of there right yeah. away because, <laughs> you know, that's, I know that situation. I, you know that someone's going to come out of the woods well, at that point. When I was a kid, I used to plan escape routes. I, my parents would be like, good night. And before I went to bed, that's I'd cool. have to map out about 15. I'd be like, if I go out the window, and I can jump on that branch, and I can use this weapon, and I can grab this pocket knife. I just think it's something we naturally do. So one thing is we're getting a, a chance to exercise our most antisocial emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that mob impulse. It's like, uh, yeah, kill them all and let God sort them out. The other thing is we get to experience fear, that roller coaster thing. We're scared to death. But at the same time, we know we're safe. So it's a chance to explore emotions in safety that we don't get a chance to. And the other thing is just pure imagination. You have a chance to see things that you wouldn't ordinarily see in a movie, and it's, you know, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, well, it's also slowing down and watching the car accident, knowing that, that someone's, too. Yes, someone's really not dying. Yes. But I also think, you know, as kids, as, I mean, I'm just going to more philosophical, I'm going to talk specifically about movies. As kids, we all tell each other, don't be afraid. Go do it. Don't be scared. When your older brother's daring you to do something, it's like, come on, jump off. You know, jump off that woodshed. Don't be afraid. Climb that tree higher. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. And as you get older, we're not allowed to be scared. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone can freak out about the political climate. We can freak out about war. We can freak out. But you're not supposed to. You have to bury it down, bury it down. But it's in there, and it's yeah. brewing. And I feel like... The stuff you've written, I know for me, it's like, oh, this is a way for me to be afraid without being seen as a coward by society. Exactly, exactly. I've had the pleasure of watching your movies as a kid before I read the book, and in some cases I read the book first and then watched it. Do you enjoy watching adaptations, or, or is it, has it sure. evolved? I mean, yeah. I imagine... No, I, I like to watch adaptations, and uh, I'm always interested to see what people do with the stuff. I have a a program uh, that I call Dollar Babies. And people who are aspiring filmmakers, yes. if it's something that isn't under contract, I'll say, sure, go ahead. You have to sign a contract, you have to pay me a buck, and you have to say, uh, I won't show this for profit unless I say you can. Frank Darabont did one, The Woman in the Room. That's, mm -hmm. that's where he got his start. But man, I just love it because there was some guy who did a version of a story I wrote called The Sun Dog with Gumby's. Okay, you know, and it was it was really interesting. It was also fucking hilarious. So you see people who do funny stuff. You see stuff, people who just and you say, well, this doesn't work. But then other things you say, there's there's real talent here. 
One of the things that I've always liked about horror movies, and this goes right back to Roger Corman, who gave so many people so a many, start. The greatest. You know, one of the movies that scared the hell out of me was Dementia 13. I know, Coppola was shooting it on a weekend while they're shooting another movie in two days and, and, in a castle in Ireland. But you see the talent there. You yeah. see the ability to choose what's going to make people afraid. Jonathan Demi, mm -hmm. some of the early stuff. Uh, I like that. So. One of the things about horror movies that I like is it's kind of still considered to be a low end. I said to you, this is my favorite time of year to go to the movies because this is where they supposedly dump stuff, but a lot of times it's fabulous. Jeff. I will watch anything that's a horror movie. I don't care how bad it is. You know what? I will, and I love it. I will, Eli, I will, I'm like three on a meat hook. I'm like a garbage disposal. I got, yeah, I'm midnight meat trade. I gotta tell you something. The worst horror movie I ever saw was fucking great. Yeah, okay? that's true. That's the way that I am because I go in there and I say, what am I gonna see? I don't know. Yeah, don't well know. then they're, they're and movies the that are- the other thing about this is like the ratings system. A movie that's PG-13, that's a horror movie, it's gotta be scary in some way that's really artistic. Once you get to R or once you get to unrated, you're saying, I don't know what I'm gonna see. I, I like know. That. Well, it's, yeah. I've always felt that synergy with punk rock, and yeah. and you've t you've talked about that too, where you're like, it's almost think it's going to upset your parents, it's going to piss people off. You're not yeah. supposed to see it, but I remember seeing <laughs> movies like The Mutilator, where it was like by axe, by pick, by hook, by bye, and just the box art alone right. of the hook, and there's literally nothing clever about this movie. It's just like he's the mutilator, hey. and they don't even have a mystery of who it is. It's just like. Oh, your dad, he just got out of prison. Let's go to the cabin anyways. And then they show him and he kills everybody, but he's the mutilator, but I love it. I got one word for you, maniac. I got Remember something that? for you. Listen, hey, that, well, who was that? William Lustig? That was Bill Lustig yeah. with Joe Spinell and Caroline Monroe. Right. Maniac is one of my favorite movies, and I had a feeling you'd like it. Maniac. Which oh, is why, as a gift for you, I brought you a maniac figure. We did not rehearse this, folks. Look. <laughs> A maniac I'm figure. so excited, I almost dropped it. It's a maniac bloody scalp. It's, isn't that sweet? Yeah. It really is. I mean, I don't know how to thank you for that. You can enjoy that. That's a little memento scalp. of this conversation. Yeah. It's a maniac figure. Yeah, I great. love Maniac because, by the way, I did a rip-off of the poster for Hostel, and Bill Lustig told me that he had the guy with a knife in the head, and he specifically told the artist, the guy has to have an erection. And they put a huge, that was the days in Times Square, they had like a huge giant billboard of it and people were outraged. I was like, we have to rip that, we have to do our own homage for Hostel. And yeah. they wound up using it in Europe as like the main poster. There you go. I love Maniac, but that had those incredible Savini effects of the scalping and all of them coming to life at the end. But it was also Joe Spinell, who's one of my favorite actors How of all time. Herschel Gordon Lewis? Herschel Gordon Lewis is Have really- Have you ever had a real Italian feast? <laughs> Blood Feast is the best. And 2000, <laughs> 2000, Mani 2000 Maniacs, Blood Feast, The Wizard of Gore. Herschel Gordon Lewis and you know, David F. Friedman- I'll drive in picks, man, I was there. 40 to $50,000, Blood Feast with, I mean, the guts being ripped out. He's the first guy that went to the butcher shop, got the pig entrails, and then just right. had people ripping him out. Right. He was one of the greats, Herschel Gordon-Lewis. I mean, I mean, but that must have been, but you got to see those movies as a kid. I was watching them on VHS after I had already seen Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. So the effects kind of pale, but you yeah. got to, what see, was it? See, it's what we were talking about before. You see it done a certain way, and then you go back to the, you know, to the originators, and you say, well, yeah, 
not that great, but it's part of the, you it's know, the, the evolution. Whole it's the evolution, yeah. Yeah, what was it like seeing, I mean, you got to see the boundary pushed going from the 1950s creatures, the man in the rubber suit, to like graphic viscera. Mm -hmm. What was it like seeing it pushed farther and farther? It was transgressive. I keep coming back to that word. You, you say to yourself, I never saw anything like that in a, in a film. And I do think that after a while, there gets to be a numbing effect. You, you get uh, si sort of numb to some of this stuff. Like when I was a kid and something like Psycho, the first time that yeah. I saw Psycho, that audience was in hysterics. And you don't see that that much anymore. People are used to these various effects. I mean, the last time I really think that I heard an audience shriek I take that back a little bit because there were some shrieks in Blair Witch, mm -hmm. you know, some people. But I can remember people shrieking at, uh, I can remember so well that I've forgotten, but you have to remember that I'm, I'm 70 years old now. <laughs> I can certainly remember, you know, the reaction in the shower scene yeah. in, in Psycho, and you never see the knife go in, so it's an amazing thing. But it's also, there was, I mean, I remember reading a lot with Wes Craven talking about watching the Vietnam footage on television and then making Last House on the Left as a mm -hmm. visceral reaction to that, which is like full entrails being pulled out. Yeah. I think that culturally seeing war on television must have done something because you can just see this, you know, almost tectonic shift in the violence that gets into the movies yeah. with, you know, obviously the... The Scorsese films and the Francis Ford Coppola and the, the film Brat films of the 70s, but what horror did in the 70s, Last House and Left, but then Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's a work of art. It is. It and, is a work of art. And uh, that's another movie where you think you see a lot more than you see. And isn't that pretty much the, the original Spam in a Cabin movie? I mean, that's the first one where these kids are out there, they can't get out, and you have, you know, th that whole thing about the last girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the final so girl starts with Marilyn yeah, Burns. I think that that's... But the meat hook scene is what we remember, where Pam gets hung on the meat hook, and yeah. the sound effect is so effective. Uh, I know. And you just, like, and it's also her acting. I mean, I always, like, I remember when I had fights with the ratings board. They were really giving me a difficult time on Hostel 2, and when the girls hung upside down being bled in a bathtub. And I said, if her acting was bad, would it be as effective? And they were like, well, no. And then I said, well, don't blame the movie because the acting. But that girl, when that thing goes through her chest, and she's like, ah, ah, and she doesn't die right away, mm -hmm. but she's gasping for air. Yeah. You, whatever it does to your subconscious, you 100% remember you see the meat going through. How her. about where Leatherface goes back into that thing and slams the that door, door slam? <laughs> when he grabs her and pulls her in and slams it. Well, the shot under the swing. I mean, if there's one movie that's the well, I'm always drinking out of to rip things off. Do you? I I remember with the with James Wan, the director of Saw, we would jokingly just try and one-up each other when it was mm -hmm. hostile and Saw, and then we had to call each other and by eventually just sort of divide up body parts. I was like, well, I'm cutting off a penis in Hostel 2. He's like, well, I'm doing a guy with a bunch of nipple rings. I was like, I was gonna do nipple ring. We, we had to like split the body parts. Do it's you get funny it? though, I mean, what, what you were saying before about directors and writers, you know, basically hanging the story because they want to do one thing. Steven Spielberg and I talked a lot about Poltergeist. He wanted me to write it, and we had some kind of a mix-up. Would, I would have written it if it was today, and we could have emailed back and forth, but there was a loss of communications. Mm -hmm. I was on a boat going across the Atlantic Ocean to England, and uh, he didn't get a reply, and he got all... But what he said to me was, I want to do a ghost kiss. 
And I said, oh, really? I mean, this whole movie about ghosts and the people in the house and the little girls and everything, and you're fixated on that? I mean, I didn't actually say that. It was yeah. Steven Spielberg. But yeah, he's going like, I want to do a ghost kiss, and I know just how I'm going to do it, sort of. I'm going to put a piece of glass down, and the ghost is going to kiss her, and you're going to see her lips move and, and kind of get a little bit white, and the pressure is going to... So you're going to see the ghost kissing her without the ghost. He said, but... I don't know how to get rid of the smear on the glass. And I said, well, I don't even think it's in the movie, but it was interesting. It's funny that that was the image that was in his head. That was the thing. That That was the hook he hung the whole thing on. And, man, I've done books where I've said, I want to finish up. I, I want this particular thing in there. And by the time the story gets there, it's changed completely. And so I think it's like that ghost kiss. I just finished a novel. I was thinking beforehand, way back to childhood, you know, I was thinking like, wouldn't it be cool, one time I was in school and I said, wouldn't it be cool if this school just started to move and then it picked up speed and I had an image in my mind of the school running over roads and knocking down trees and putting this path through the woods and crashing through houses and coming into town and running people down and all that other stuff. And I said, I really want to kind of go back to that and do something with that. And there's a scene that's within shouting distance of that in the book, but it never really... Never quite hits it. Never quite hit it. Do you get inspired by movies? We ever watch a movie and go, that's so scary, I need to one-up it or do my version of that? Yeah, or sometimes I'll be watching a movie and I'll be thinking to myself, you know, this is a really interesting situation. I wonder if I could come at this in a different direction and I could do something that has that feel of that that sort of thing, you know? Yeah. Well, interesting you brought up Poltergeist, because Poltergeist, for me, the thing I remember the most out of all the effects was the clown. Sure. And that clown doll was the scare. That was the first image that terrified me from clowns. And then, of course, it comes along. And here we are years later, and it's the biggest horror film yeah. of all time. Tell me about your experience watching it from the book, which I remember with the summer the book came out, yeah. everyone was reading it, we all had our like <laughs> copies of it this big, no matter where we were, and then watching the television adaptation and Andy Muschietti's film, what was that like, experiencing well, uh, the new First kid? of all, the clowns hate me. You know, most clowns yeah, are mad. really good people, and they love children, and they go to hospitals, and they make a living and everything. In fact, I have an assistant up in Maine whose husband, part-times, is a clown for mm-hmm. something, and he tries to be nice to me because his wife works for me and everything, but you can see... You can tell he's pissed. Me this yeah, that's like me but with tourists. You know, I just tell people, don't hate the messenger for the message. Kids right. are scared to death of clowns. You know, clowns are a natural disguise for monsters because you never know what's under that makeup. And John Wayne Gacy did those clown paintings. John Wayne Gacy did the But tell me your experience seeing the new... Are you involved with the movie when you see it? What did you... I mean, that opening sequence with the yellow raincoat was one of the best openings in horror movies in all I wasn't involved with the miniseries, and I wasn't involved with this. I've talked with Andy since then, and uh, I think the movie was partially a success because a lot of kids saw the miniseries when they were 11 or 12, and it was pretty scary for TV, and it made a mark on them. And when the movie came out, they they really wanted to see that. But the thing is, Andy shot the shit out of that movie. He really did. He did a terrific job with the movie, and he stuck 
to the kids' part of the book, which was dynamite, a dynamite it's idea. It's amazing. My it feeling, had shades of Stand By Me in the movie. Yeah, it I did, but, but it did from the book, too. I mean, it, yeah. it's still, you know, the sort of from the point of view of looking up, from the kids' point of view, I always think of when I'm working on it or when I was working on Stand By Me, you know how in the Peanuts cartoons, you know, the adults don't really have voices. They just go, and that's what it is for kids pretty much. So first of all, I got a jinx thing. If people are in touch with me a lot about something, I always feel like maybe they've lost their way. But the worst jinx of all is never send me swag from a movie. Before the movie, before comes the movie out. comes out, never send me a That'll hat. Put the whammy never, on it. It puts the whammy on it completely. So I didn't really have anything to do with that. I knew some of the history when that guy, whose last name I can't pronounce, Carrie Fukunaga. Carrie Fukunaga, yeah. You know, when he was involved, I'd seen True Detective, and I thought, well, I wish he was doing it, but I knew Andy's work from from Mama. Mama. Yeah, Mama was terrific. So, and Mama was terrific. So I said, we got a real chance here. He's got a chance to do something really good because the script was very, very strong. It was very smart. They knew the right things to put in and the right things to leave out. I saw it. They asked me, would I want to see a rough cut down here in Sarasota? And this was probably eight months before the movie was released. So it was a really early cut. But I looked at it and I said, this thing's going to be huge. It's perfect. It really works. You just know from the beginning, because when Georgie is running down the gutter after the, the, the boat, it looks like a real rainstorm. It doesn't yeah. look like a sunny day where people ran a rain machine. It looks like that was it gloomy really and over. And once they rip it, when they ripped his arm off, you go, oh my God, this yeah, is again yeah, exactly. unstable narrator. See, Anything the, can happen. Anyone was, can go. It, it was a mainstream movie that was rated R. This is going to be a, a big thing for the next few years because you've got people who grew up on PG-13 who are now ready. 18, 19 years old and they're ready for something that's a little bit stronger. And those people responded like crazy to that Well, it movie. played like a family film. It was, it, it again, it became the movie you were dared to see. And there were laughs in it and everything. And kids talked about it that were too young to see it and i think a lot of them saw it anyway and that's the way it should work it should be forbidden this yeah. kind of thing should be forbidden i always yeah that's exactly hostile yeah is a forbidden movie you know you go see it and you say whoa when i was a kid a little kid uh uh i can remember clearly being on the bus stop standing around you know where was maybe a fourth or fifth grade and this kid comes up to me and says, because this was a time when they had like full page ads for exploitation mm -hmm. pictures because they were going to be there for a week and then they were going to be gone. This kid walks up to me and says, Stevie, Stevie, are you going to go see McBear? And I'm like, what? McBear? He says, yeah, it's going to be really, really scary. There's a kid that gets buried alive. It's called McBear. Well finally figured out he was talking about macabre. It was a William <laughs> And I did go to see it, and it did scare me. McBear. Yeah, McBear. When they opened the coffin, the kid looks black. Yeah. You know, from asphyxiation or something, so. That's, well, let's talk about another adaptation. So that, that, what I'm saying is it was forbidden. You know, that was the kind of thing well, yeah, I, I My mom was like, you are not to watch House of Wax. I was like, can I watch Bingo, Caligula? Yes. And they were like. I got to go see it. I got to go, go see it. it. I got to yeah. see it. But it's weird that to my mom, House of Wax was the most forbidden. I could watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Dawn of the Dead, because she'd be like, oh, that's just makeup effects. House of Wax was truly, that was the one 
And then I remember seeing it being like, this isn't scary at all. It's like every generation has their, has took, their house of wax. I taught a, a film class, um, uh, horror films. I actually, I did this book called Dance Macabre. Yeah, I love Dance Macabre. Dance McBear. Dance McBear is one of my favorites, <laughs> the dancing bear. And it sort of grew out of my notes for this class that I did on films and books. I mean, we read the books, we looked at the films. And one of the films that really worked for me as a kid for a lot of different complex reasons was The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, Don Siegel's uh, great Don film. Don Siegel. And one of the things was I fell in love with the girl, mm -hmm. you know, Becky. Yeah. Who turns into a pod at the end of the movie. I know. She you just, the whole time, you're like, don't let her fall asleep. Don't let her fall asleep. So I remember that, and I remember the pods, and I remember how it gave me goosebumps when it opens and you see the sort of blank faces and all that foam and everything. So I showed it to my college class. They laughed. They laughed. Well, you they should have shown them the remake where Brooke Adams stands up naked and points. That yeah. was pretty... Oh! One of the best ending yeah. shots ever. Um, what I remember about that is Donald Sutherland being a health in inspector, and uh, rat turd. he says, then yeah. the chef says, it's not a it's, rat turd, it's a caper. It's a caper. <laughs> and Donald Sutherland says, If it's a caper, it. then eat it. <laughs> yeah. Cut to him shoveling the rice. The Shining, I saw that as a kid. I had no preconceived, it was that for me was the movie you were warned against seeing. Yep. And it was, it was a weird, and it was, I was not old enough to read the book. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I could have read it, but it was like 10 years old. It would have been like a bit too much for me. And I watched it and I remember being completely puzzled, confused, like wanting to watch it again to figure it out, terrified. Your reaction watched it, I mean, you were never a fan. Of, it was so different from the book. Are you able to enjoy the movie at all on any level or is it just not an interesting movie? I can enjoy it on the same level that you could enjoy a beautifully restored Cadillac without a motor in it. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a gorgeous film to look at. Absolutely gorgeous. The soundtrack is gorgeous to look at. You know, I've said this before, my rap about it is there's no character arc. In the book, Jack Torrance goes from an, a nice guy who's trying to get better for his family and for himself. I had an image going into that of a thin piece of metal that you bend back and forth, back and forth until it snaps. And I felt like Jack Nicholson played Jack Torrance as though he were crazy from the crazy jump. for minute one. He's he's uh, talking with Mr. Ullman in the office, and Ullman's saying this and that, and Jack's going, "Yes, <laughs> absolutely, Mr. Ullman." He's yes, no yeah, no, he's Ullman. nuts from from the first minute so when they're I in the house. That, so I breakfast. felt there wasn't any character arc, but I also thought that Kubrick had taken a pretty strong, scary suspense horror novel and turned it into an art film, and I kind of went. Like, I can remember screening it and Jack Nicholson was there and at the end of the movie, Jack said to me, you don't know if he's done with you yet, do you? And I said, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, but there are certain images, the elevators open, the blood coming out, the twins. Are you able to enjoy that stuff or does it, is it frustrating that it doesn't line up with what you wrote? It's a fantastic visual image. It goes back to what I said about the gorgeous Cadillac. What's it in the service of? That's the question. You know, it's not like Texas Chainsaw, where you understand the girl got hung up on the meat hook. Okay, there's one girl left. Good God, what's going to happen to her? I didn't feel that way. I had other problems with it. It's a misogynistic film. I mean, Shelley Duvall is basically a dish rag that screams. Yeah. I mean, if you made that picture today, can you imagine the Me Too 
movement. No, I mean the bathtub with the, with the old yeah. woman naked. It's never or, or maybe does. maybe it would be accepted on one level because they would say this is a perfect picture of abuse in action, mm -hmm. so to speak. So there could be that. One of your adaptations that I think is, I don't know if it's underrated or it's not talked about enough, but everyone who's seen it loves it is Cujo, Louis yeah. Teague's film. I love that. That movie, I remember the first time I saw that, it was such a simple idea. The dog, and I remember the book being the biggest deal, but that movie was terrifying. I was petrified. When people ask me, what are the ones that are your favorite movies, I always mention Cujo. It goes to sort of the prejudice that film reviewers have about horror pictures. The acting you, I, doesn't I'll tell count. You something. Yeah. I'll tell you something, Eli. It drives me crazy. I got so angry at the Academy Awards the other night. There was one little flash you saw of Pennywise the Clown, and that was it. Nobody mentioned it. There was nothing about it. It didn't get nominated for any awards. But, I mean, come on. It grossed $700 million worldwide. And not only that, it was a good film. Bill Skarsgård acted Amazing. his ass off as Pennywise the Clown. The kids were great. That Finn Wolfhard, it's that amazing. Richie. So good. Eddie, you know, his performance was easily the equal of Ryan O'Neill's daughter uh, in Paper Moon. Yeah. But he did, she won an Academy Award. He didn't even get nominated. So n none of them did. Well, the costume design, none of that nothing. stuff. Nothing. Cinematography, and costume design, that's, score, that's nothing. That's the sort of How about James McAvoy does not get nominated for Split? Yeah. And you, for, and you watch that exactly. performance, playing 27 different actors flawlessly. Exactly. I look at Dee Wallace's performance in Cujo, That's and you're like, that is to. one of the great, or Jason Miller in The Exorcist, Dee Wallace and Cujo, I was Dee like, this Wallace is one of the should great have been nominated. That performances. Was, that was one of the great bravura performances of all time. And the movie is so simple, because that's what, to me, horror is always situational. It's something where you say to yourself, okay, we're gonna put a woman and a boy in the car, and then we're gonna see what happens. I had sun on a hot summer day, and, and it just works like that. They had like seven different dogs that worked on it. They built a Ford Pinto entirely out of shell aluminum so that when the dog hit it the door, so it, would, it would crumple like that. And I remember those people, it was an outfit called Sun International mm -hmm. that actually produced the movie. And I was in New York, and they came and we sat around and we talked about it a little bit and the guy said, I'm gonna say something now that you'll probably get mad about. And uh, I said, what's that? He said, we think the little boy should live at the end of the movie. Uh, Tad dies at the end of the book. And yeah. I said, look, if you make a movie, it's got a different kind of audience with different expectations. And if that little boy dies, I think they're probably gonna come out of the theaters and they're gonna wanna lynch you, so go with God. I've always felt that way about the movies. Do what you're gonna do, and then you know we'll see what works and what doesn't. I always feel like what I write works, and they should do that, but if they don't, eh, go with God. Tad lives at the end of the movie, but there's a scene earlier on where after Cujo has been bitten by the bats and mm -hmm. he has the rabies, where the dog licks the little boy's face. So I always tell people, you know, <laughs> the little boy lives at the end of the movie, and then after the movie's over, he died horribly of for rabies, rabies foaming yeah. in no, the mouth. No cure day. for rabies. But it's a good movie, and it keeps it simple, and it really works. Fred Sears made that movie. Fred, anyway, it was supposed remember. to be directed by the guy who directed Woodstock, Michael... Michael Watley? Michael Watley, I think that was it. And yeah, he, was on he did board. Wolfen. Yeah, 
He was probably shoot. Yeah. He shot two days and he said, "I can't do this," and he walked out. Really? Michael Watley, I had no idea. Yeah. Well, he had just done a wolf movie, so then to go from a wolf to a dog might have been pretty tricky. Um, Louis Teague then. Louis Teague. came on. Yes. Yeah. Well, Louis Teague went from Cujo from your dog movie to Cat's Eye. He went to Cat's Eye. Which I loved. Cat's Eye. Cat's Eye was almost like like after Creep Show, it was almost like a PG-13 Creep Show, but that image of the girl dancing in the box to 96 Tears was one of the most <laughs> dramatic things in Quitters Incorporated. It was one of the best adaptations of your work I'd ever seen. I talked to Lewis about Cat's Eye before they started shooting. Cat's Eye was the second PG-13 movie. I remember it. Ever released. And, was uh, the first one Dreamscape or Temple of Doom? I think Temple of Doom was creative. It was like it Temple of Doom, Dreamscape, Temp- Runaway, and Cat's Eye. I remember it, seeing anything I think it was Runaway because yeah, Tom Selleck. I was, I was afraid when they said that we're going to do this as a PG-13. I said, you know what? I don't think anybody will go see a PG-13 movie because the parents of young children will think it's too scary and kids who are older will think it's too Lame. childish. Yeah. And for a while, PG-13 movies didn't really work that well. But I went up to Louis Teague and I said... Didn't W.C. Fields say never work with children or animals? Yeah, I said, and he, he said, I've, I've never had that problem. Vampires. Salem's Lot freaked me out. First, being Jewish, the cross thing never. I was like, is that all it takes? It was like, yeah. really? Are they that afraid of What if they're Jewish vampires? It's always my first thought. Salem's Lot, I remember well, you know, Nosferatu. The, book, the, the priest uses the cross on the vampire, and the vampire walks up to him and snaps it in two pieces and drops it on the floor. He says, it only works if you believe. Oh. Well, that Salem's Lot, I remember being so scared by that movie, not just because of the way the vampire looked, but because during the day, opening the coffin, that was the first time I had seen horror stuff that was shot during the day that Mm -hmm. petrified me and floating around at night. I mean, there was a whole wave of vampire movies that were romantic and sexy, and you really restored it to being absolutely terrifying. Yeah. R- Reggie Nalder was great as the vampire. Tell and me about uh, you know writing Salem's Lot, shooting the movie, what you like or dislike about the romantic vampire versus the scary dead guy. Well, vampires are supposed to be awful. I mean, I grew up reading Dracula and uh, reading about the stink of the grave, the graveyard earth that the vampire was in with uh, the worms crawling in it, about the, his fated breath. And the whole thing was like, it was supposed to be ugly and nasty. And I wanted that kind of a vampire. I was I never very interested in uh, the romantic interview with a vampire movie, uh, uh, Tom yeah, Cruise. I remember Interview with a Vampire, everyone coming out of that movie, and I was like, why don't they just walk into light? They're all complaining. Why don't, they know how to kill themselves. Why don't they just do it? Right. But what yeah. do you think Anne Rice, what she injected, there's a whole audience that sort of, I think, the interview with the vampire because it was Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, became a gateway drug for horror for a lot of fans. The thing is, the vampire, the whole vampire idea, the the romantic vampire has always been popular with teens and early 20s and things, particularly women, because it's seen as almost like no-fault sex. Uh, The vampire is very handsome and very hypnotic. And after all, what's he really going to do? He's going to give you a great big hickey, like on Lover's Lane. But that's not the way it's supposed to 
to be, you know, to my mind. You know, I wanted uh, the whole schmear where the vampires turn more vampires and they, they can't come out in the daylight and all that stuff. I'm a classicist, man. There was a photo of one kid at Comic-Con when Twilight came out, there was like some angry kid with a huge placard that said, Nosferatu didn't sparkle. Yeah, and I was like, exactly. that's me, I'm that's that kid. Right. I can remember being at an autographing thing uh, not too long after uh, that book came out and this, this kid walked up to me and he said, you know, you ought to do a squeal in that genre. And I'm like, what? And finally I figured out he was saying, you ought to do a sequel in that genre. A squeal yeah. in that Jenner. A squeal in that Jenner. He, it, it turned out that this kid was the only one in his family who read, and he'd read Salem's Lot to death. But Toby Hooper made it. He made it on a budget. Uh, he had a By lot the way, of, speaking of the Academy Awards, I was really angry that Toby Hooper was not mentioned was not in the mentioned, In Memoriam. Yeah. I mean, that guy to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Poltergeist, Eaten Alive, like Salem's Lot. That guy has made so many seminal movies. He's a seminal. Uh, and but because it's horror, they think it doesn't count. That's right. But on the other hand, I was in that montage, so what? Can I say? that was great. <laughs> I know, like, you don't want to play favorites, but is there one adaptation of yours that you're like, that's the one that nailed exactly what was in my head, or do you not judge it by that? Well, it depends on whether you're talking about one of the balls to the wall horror movies. Uh, but there are a lot of things that you you know you talk about wanting that moment. The uh, version of uh, Gerald's Game. Yeah. It was on Netflix. There's a degloving scene in that that's very hard to watch, and that's a great moment in a really good film. Uh, there are things in Christine, John Carpenter's movie, that I really like with mm -hmm. a car on fire, indelible images. But if I had to say, what's the one movie that's really, really scary and just is unrelenting, I would say probably Rob Reiner's Misery. You know, because it all builds up to that scene. The penguin. It's the little things. The hobbling yeah. is as effective as him putting the penguin. When he puts the penguin the wrong way, the whole audience went, no, she's going to know, she's going to know. It's the right. simplest. That it's as effective as the image of that foot but and see, the hobbling. One of the things that made that film work and made Rob Reiner the perfect person to do it is because humor and horror are really two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. You know, I always say, it stops being funny when it starts being you. A lot of times in a horror movie, something really terrible will happen and the audience will go, ah! And then they'll laugh, you know, because they're trying to play it off a little bit, so. And, awesome. and Misery has a lot of funny things in it. That whole Liberace thing wasn't in the book. Really? How crazy she is about Liberace. She was amazing. And that was, by the way, that and Silence of the Lambs the first time I remember what we would call horror movies, but they had to call them thrillers, so they were classy, yeah. winning awards. That was the first time. And right. then this year you see Get Out winning for screenplay, which is pretty yeah, cool. But it's, and it Guillermo was, winning for Shape of Water. I know, that was an excellent thing. That's cool. I mean, that's like the Oscar version of Creature from the Black Lagoon. Eli, come on now. How much respect do you really want to have? Because the more respect that we get in this field, the less I feel like we're doing our job, you uh, know? I mean, I, my latest film is at the critic rating 15% on Rotten Tomatoes, and the audience is at 85%, so it's like, I mean, my work is done This here. is why I love February and March, because you see that, I, if I see a movie like that, and it's got that little Rotten Tomatoes booger splat, I say to myself, I wanna go see that one, man. <laughs> awesome. I wanna go see that. Well, thank you so much. Hey, can't get enough of the conversation? Eli Roth's History of Horror is now streaming on Shudder, full and commercial free. At Shudder, we're the best selection in streaming genre. It's handpicked and curated by experts, including me. 
We cover the amazing spectrum of horror thrillers and suspense, including breakout revenge essentials like Mandy and Revenge, all-time classic The Changeling, horror fantasy hit series A Discovery of Witches, and our new Shudder original documentary Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Start your free two-week trial with promo code SHUDDERPOD. That's promo code S-H-U-D-D-E-R-P-O-D. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Hosted by Sam Zimmerman, produced by Liam Finn, sound designed by Jeremy Lee, music composed by Michael Tioli. Special thanks to executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sienga, Jonathan Koch, Stephen Michaels, James McNabb, Allison Berkeley, and Joseph Freed, as well as the AMC Networks and AMC Studio Development and Production teams who allowed us at Shudder to make this. For Shudder, Owen Shiflett, Nicholas Lazo, and Robin Jones. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of first publication, United States of America, History of Horror, Uncut. <laughs>